Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio. 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show highlighting issues around homelessness and rooming houses. Hi, my name's Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show we highlight one of the 12-step recovery programs that assist recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery experience with us and show us how that shared experience saves lives. Um, today my guests are Eugenie and Nikita. They're members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they'll be sharing how AA has helped them recover from alcoholism. So welcome to the 3CR studio, guys. Thanks, Bill. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. No worries. Um, now, <clears throat> what we usually do is talk about our lives, uh, starting early, like in family, and, and how, how you progressed to drinking, how life progressed, and then how you found AA and what life's like now. So, Eugenie, how did life start for you? Um, life started for me as far as drinking was concerned in the womb, apparently. <laughs> My mom was an active uh, uh, drinker during uh, her pregnancy. <clears throat> and uh, I'm told that I was actually offered uh, champagne uh, in the bottle. And later on, when I was three or four, it was common to give me a mix of water and wine when there were family celebrations. And I think my first uh, personal attempt at experiencing alcohol was when I found my grandmother's cherry in liquor. It was only 40% back then. And I think I uh, totally attacked the one kilo jar and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. And it was a bit of a a surprise because my parents couldn't understand how come those cherries were disappearing very fast until they saw tiny sticky fingers all over the the <laughs> door of the cabinet and um yeah so that was probably my first real experience of uh, hard liquor and uh, then my family uh, being full of alcoholics uh, and joyous ones i think uh, every opportunity they had to uh, celebrate and use and abuse alcohol, uh, I was a part of it. And uh, it was just normality for me, so I didn't know any different. So were your parents functioning alcoholics? Oh, totally, yes. Yeah. They were highly successful um, in uh, in their own uh, careers, both parents working. So um, as far as they were concerned, there was nothing wrong, and uh, they enjoyed it, and the rest of the family did too. Yep, okay. So um, it must be difficult growing up in an alcoholic family. Um, it became very difficult when I was 13 and my parents uh, split up because at that point my mum basically um, um, really struggled uh, with the separation and uh, basically uh, dived into the bottle as um, her coping mechanism and uh, what used to be social drinking became isolated drinking and abusing of alcohol and in a way that was actually really quite dangerous for her. And the situation really spiraled down quite rapidly for her. 
uh, to a point where she ended up having to go to uh, detox and rehab on a regular basis and was struggling with uh, depression as well and uh, had suicidal tendencies. So I was caring for her and um, it was a really difficult time for the two of us because she was a closet alcoholic. She was in denial of the situation, so she was not a willing participant of her recovery. And um, I suppose she was not very well as well. Oh, no, she was very unwell, very, very unwell. So it was really sad to see mum basically sleeping away and just just basically, yes, hitting rock bottom. Mm. Okay, so over to you, Nikita. So was your life similar or very different? Uh, Quite the opposite, actually. Um, There was no alcohol in my immediate family whatsoever. Um, My uncles on my... Uh, on my dad's side were all alcoholics and my parents had made it uh, so that um, my parents had made it so that there was no alcohol in the family so you know we wouldn't get any bad ideas you know it wasn't brought up that this behaviour was acceptable Um, but uh, that made it, you know, taboo and exciting. <laughs> right. So did that mean that you were attracted to alcohol because of that? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it was definitely something that I wanted to try. I, it looked very alluring. Yep. Okay. So did you have brothers and sisters? Yes. Um, I've got two older brothers, uh, two, two brothers and two sisters. Eugenie. Yes. How about you, growing up with looking after your mum, yes. trying to go to school, trying to have a normal life, what was life like for you? Oh, it was tough because I was, uh, I never knew basically when I got home what state I would see my mum in. Um, it was basically a, a daily uh, battle trying to find or look for the bottles hidden everywhere. Uh, struggling also financially because mum's poison of choice was whiskey and she could easily download a litre in the space of 15 minutes. Yep. And um, that became quite costly. And, um, yeah, I suppose uh, the fact that she was also suicidal added to um, the complication and the mixing of alcohol with her medication was definitely lethal. So there was... um, a state of constant um, anxiety on my on my part uh, because uh, initially she was hiding it so well that no one believed me. Right. So it took it took several years for her to be to be found out, so to speak, because she she made me uh, she begged me to to hide it from everybody else because she was so ashamed of uh, her circumstances. And she was very good at manipulating me as well. And I suppose uh, it was just so sad. I wasn't, I wasn't judging her and I was just feeling so sorry for her that I'd, I was trying to do whatever she asked in, in order to, um, well, to ease her pain. And mm. so I was an accomplice and to some degree, even if I was trying to control her drinking, I wasn't necessarily, I didn't feel it was my place you know, as a 15-year-old to uh, 
to um, to tell on the rest of the world what was going on until it became critical and she found herself in the hospital. And then basically um, the rest of the family found out and uh, took over the situation and forced her into a, a detox and rehab. But uh, I was very much ashamed and I was so scared that I would also become like her. Um, at that point, the rest of the family also was declining. So it wasn't just my mom. There were uh, my uncles. Uh, there was cases of violence uh, between uncle and aunts. Uh, everyone's uh, alcoholism was now getting to a point where it was uh, s- causing a lot of um, dramas and, and physical assault, etc., etc. So I started really seeing the decline from what I perceive to be just, you know, people having a good time and just maybe overdoing it, you know, once yeah. in a while to uh, people being destroyed by this uh, by this substance. And, yeah, I was really scared. I was really, really scared. Mm. And I didn't get much support. And I think the attention then shifted to her and her recovery. So, yep. so how did you get out of that situation of looking after your mum? Well... When I was 19, she was so unwell that we went on holidays because she needed a break on top of everything she was going through. She was then diagnosed with a bone disease, like um, elephant man. And was, this was very peculiar and hard to uh, handle for her. So we went three weeks away to Senegal, at which point uh, she started feeling weird things in her tummy. And after going to the GP, was told she was five months pregnant. Now, this was a shock and was definitely added complication because of her bone illness. So she then uh, got an ultrasound to confirm the situation and the specialist around her insisted on having to uh, perform a, um, an interruption of, uh, of the situation because of all the medication and the dozens of x-rays that she had been exposed to. And strangely enough, uh, the night before the due um, termination, she ended up having a miscarriage. And I delivered mum in the taxi on the way to the hospital and found that surprisingly enough, um, the baby was viable. And the cortisone that she had been taking was what saved uh, the baby, even 21-week gestation. But mum, knowing her situation, uh, certainly could not consider um, the possibility of looking after her daughter. And I was asked to lie and pretend that nothing had happened. And this was certainly not something I could personally handle because she was essentially asking me to abandon my sister. I had just been holding in my in my hands the the day before so when I flew back uh, home on my own the seven hours flight gave me a a real clarity as to what needed to be done and that was for me to adopt my own sister so once mum came back and uh, had uh, gone back to the, the the alcohol because she just could not cope with the entire experience uh, so she took another dive and after the three months uh, incubation period, uh, my sister was able to travel back and was taken back home. And I then uh, decided to look after my sister until mum would get better in the hope that they would start creating a bond with each other. 
Did she bet? Did she get better? Um, she did get better because uh, eventually, as we were leaving the three of us, I think she had no choice but to realize that there was this beautiful, gorgeous, uh, you know, healthy baby uh, who became more and more interesting to her, and that's when I realized that there was a chance that mum would use that situation as an opportunity and an incentive to uh, look after herself. So, um, right. yes, it's a happy ending. But um, the situation uh, was still very fragile for mum's uh, um, drinking habits and she needed uh, a lot of support. And um, we all tiptoeing. We knew that having a child would be um, a point of focus that hopefully would keep her away from the bottle, but there was never any certainty. So the family uh, gathered and we put together a support system. And at that point, I really needed to uh, move on and give them the space for the two of them to uh, to bond properly. And I started uh, working and left the, the, the house. Okay. Nikita, you happy to go? Yes, I've recovered. Okay, okay good. <laughs> So, um, so growing up, when were you first exposed to alcohol? Uh, my first drink was at 15. Um, uh, but that was also the first time that I tried weed. So I wasn't quite sure yep. which one, uh, what the effects were from which. Um, but I just know that I had a good time. Um, I'm, you know, at 15... I had probably around three problems, but um, when I when I drank the the butterscotch snaps and and smoked the weed, um, I had three less problems. <laughs> so, did you like the way it made you feel? Yeah, yeah. I just felt um, I felt like I fit my skin. I felt like I'd been holding this breath my whole life, and I'd finally let it out. And something something just came together. Okay. So were you a fun drunk? Yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, did, your fr- did you drink with your friends or did you drink with anybody who drank with you? Um, all of the above. All right. Um, I would, I, yeah, I would, I would drink with, with anyone. If my friends wouldn't drink with me, then they were, they were dead to me for the evening. Um, but I would always, I would always make good the next day. Um, it would just be an excuse, you know. Like I was, I was drinking, you know. That was drunk Nikita. She was, she's just a different person. Okay. Yeah. Um, given that your family didn't have alcohol in the house, how did they react to your drinking? Uh, they weren't impressed, but uh, they probably saw it as inevitable. Uh, my oldest, my older sibling. I uh, had some problems with alcohol as well. Um, we drank the same, uh, which was problematic at the time, but not alcoholic right. in the younger days. Um, my older sibling did go to a hospital for it, um, but I do think it was just heavy drinking and not alcoholic. Right, okay. Um, so when did you start drinking in earth? So you Obviously, in secondary school. So, when did when did your drinking kick off in real terms? Um, in real terms, it would have been after after I left high school. So, um, around 
18, 19. Um, I had my first blackout when I was 18. Um, I'd, I was in the, the pub of my hometown in uh, regional Victoria. Uh, I just remember I was drinking and then suddenly I was at home at 8 in the morning and I'd pissed myself on the couch and my mum was furious. <laughs> And I just could not believe, like, um, you know, later on in my life, that stuff became normal. Like, just uh, that that kind of behavior became normalized. And now I look back and I'm horrified. But, um, yeah. Do you want to explain what a blackout is? Um, a blackout is uh, you're drinking um, and then you you drink so much that your your body can't handle it. You're... Um, it's actually a form of brain damage, um, and your brain can no longer retain short-term memory, and um, your body just kind of goes on autopilot. So uh, you're st- you're still kind of there, you're functioning, but the lights aren't on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So talking to alcoholics, I realised that that was my dad. What my dad did most nights because he was an alcoholic, and. That's why he never felt bad about what he'd done the next day. And we could never understand how he could forget. But if he was in a blackout, then that's you know, a clear explanation of that, that behaviour. Okay. Um, right. Well, listen, we're up to, uh, up to a song. Um, this one's called Dedicated to the One I Love, and it's by the Mamas and Papas from way back in 1967. Nice. Well, I'm far away from you, my baby. It's hard for you, my baby, because it's hard for me, my baby, and the darkest hour is just before dawn. Each night before you go to bed.
slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Ah, you're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR on Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, we've got nearly 100 episodes of the show available as podcasts and they're available from our website, which is 3cr.org.au forward slash living free. Uh, if you'd like to send us a message, you can either contact 3CR on 9419 8377 or email us at 3 free at com. Uh, we're also on Twitter as 3CR Living Free. I'm talking with Eugenie and Nikita about recovering from alcoholism with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, Eugenie, we back to you. So you moved out of home around 19-ish? Uh, 20, yeah. 20, um, and went to work. So what was life like for you? Uh, life was very different because it was my first time living on my own and not having to care for anyone. Yeah. So I kind of probably lived my teens. Um, I was quite wild. And um, I ended up working first in advertising and then found an opportunity to uh, start working in finance. And the second I worked in finance, I was officially taught how to drink because it was expected of me to be drinking copious amount of alcohol um, and needing to still behave and negotiate contracts and be presentable and efficient. So I actually had drinking training sessions with my boss. <laughs> it was quite phenomenal. So he would push, the, he would push me to drink um, probably the equivalent of 20 units of alcohol over three or four hour lunch and would, Test me, you know, I had to be able to walk, I had to be able to talk and make sense and trade, which I ended up doing very successfully and I was very proud of myself. So I was part of uh, the clan and I was doing as well, if not better than some of the boys. So, yeah, I was good. I was really good at it. So how long did that last? Well, um, it lasted um, close to 15 years. And I moved um, from France to the UK, where I was still working in finance. And again, uh, the Brits, you know, are known to hold their liquor. And again, I had to uh, follow the same path, at which point I had earned my medals already. So I was quickly part of, you know, the boys and um, acting like them, drinking like them and 
except that I was never sick. I was never complaining of any hangovers. So I thought I was a real pro. And um, it was fun. I really enjoyed those times because personally, I could really handle it pretty well. I mean, probably not so much towards the end. I could feel my liver was struggling and I would start pacing myself. I would avoid um, uh, mixing because I knew gradually my body was uh, calling for help. But I just enjoyed it too much. Yeah. So what about relationships? Mm, um, uh, relationships. Um, relationships were tough for me and it's fair to say that I could not handle any relationship without a copious amount of booze since I had been uh, sexually assaulted by my neighbor when I was 21. So that was a bit of a turning point and not even consciously, but I was always making sure I was heavily intoxicated to find Dutch courage to, um, yeah, to, to be able to be intimate. I could not do that sober. I had to have a lot of alcohol in my system. And I found my um, husband who was also a dealer, so he was also a drinker, so things were fine. And at that point, because both of us were functioning, uh, we never made... I mean, to me, being an alcoholic was like my mum. Uh, I considered that, yes, we were heavy drinkers, but as long as we could keep a job. And I then had a daughter, and I was able to... Uh, uh, stop drinking uh, throughout my pregnancy. I felt as if I had this under control. So, yeah, so then I went straight back to uh, doing what I do best, which was uh, drinking and socializing. And, and the two went very well together until I started having panic attacks. And uh, they were debilitating, and I actually had to do a career change as a result. Um, and drink was always uh, acceptable and uh, in social environment, and I would be a social animal, so I just didn't think anything of it until, yeah, I suppose then I had a difficult breakup and health issues, and then uh, I met another another man who then introduced me to cannabis, and uh, oh wow, well, that was perfect. Uh, to help me with my chronic back pain. And I didn't think uh, too much of it because it was just once in a blue moon uh, kind of experience. But gradually I noticed that within the relationship, what was once a blue moon was once every Friday and Friday turned into Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then alcohol joined and both, and then it became a daily experience. And in the space of maybe six months, I could see that I was needing alcohol and cannabis on a daily basis just to function. And uh, things were not so much fun anymore. Okay. Uh, Nikita, I'll ask you a similar question. So sure. you moved out of home um, and into the workforce. So how did that change your drinking? Um, so... I was still living at home when I started work um, in regional Australia. Um, so I started working in pubs um, and it was just uh, like dead-end work, but that was enough 
to get me the money to drink the way I wanted to. Um, and I was in a relationship that I didn't really enjoy. Um, but, you know, I, I was, um, you know, I was wanted and that was enough for me. So, um, I was miserable, but, you know, I was getting sufficiently what I needed. Functioning. Yeah. 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 Um, so how did that change? I, I did a sabbatical, a sabbatical, a geographical, sorry. Um, and I booked a one way ticket to Scotland. As Um, you do. (laughs) As you do. Um, I barely consulted my partner at the time I just left. Um, and, uh, so how did things change over there? Well, everything got a lot worse. <laughs> um, I moved in with a uh, a rock band, um, and they all drank alcoholically. Um, so I ended up in this perfect little alcoholic bubble where um, all of the drinking was socially acceptable. You could drink any time as much as you like and no one thought it was wrong um you know we would all drink in the morning we would put rum in our coffee and call it pirate coffee Um, that's terrific (laughs) (laughs) and it was all fun and games um and yeah we all turned into daily drinkers uh you know somewhat by accident um and no one was telling us it was wrong (laughs) Okay, so uh, that can't go on forever. No, not very sustainable. No. Um, ended up having a tiff with someone I lived with and I ended up moving to uh, a hotel in the Isle of Skye to work there and live there. Uh, and I had a roommate. So I had acquired uh, this lifestyle of drinking daily and alcoholically. Um, which I couldn't now keep up having to work full-time and live with a roommate and uh, try to hide that I drink daily and alcoholically. Um, So I had to try to stop. Well, not stop, because I wasn't going to (laughs) stop. (laughs) I had to drink less or be more sneaky. Or Or both, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) just to... um, control how they saw me because I didn't want them to know what was going on in my life. Could they tell? Um, At the time, I didn't think they could, but I'm sure they could. (laughs) Strange, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, Yes, other people can see right through it. Mm. When they... Sometimes they can't see anything. They've got no idea. And other times they can just see straight through it. It's just classic. So um, how did that job work out? Um, I ended up losing it. I, uh, I did try to stop drinking. Uh, I had the thought, I said, I should, I should try to control my drinking. Um, but it was just a thought, uh, nothing actually happened. Um. Did you think of going to AA? Not actually. I was, I was going to go to shut everyone else up because people were getting into my business. So, um... My boss said, you know, do you want to go to AA? And I 
you know, if it was going to mean that I could keep my job, yeah. I was going to go. But I had actually done so many bad things that I couldn't keep my job. <laughs> <laughs> I was a repeat offender. So <laughs> he told me that if he let me keep my job, then literally anything else anyone did, they couldn't get fired for if he let me keep my job for what I'd done. Right. <laughs> Which is pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you also got banned from the pub you worked in, was that right? Yeah. <laughs> that was at the next hotel I worked at. <laughs> it's going from bad to worse. Uh, so back to you, Eugenie. Um, so um, trying to, uh, you know, drinking a lot and trying to control it, How did were you able to stop? <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> it consumed every hour of my day. I kept telling, I, I would give myself, you know, okay, I'll start drinking at 8 p.m. And by midday, I would tell myself, oh, no, 7 p.m. will be fine. That's dinner time. And then by 2 p.m., I'd say, oh, you know, 6 o'clock is 1 o'clock. And by the time I would leave work, I would go straight to the bottle shop because there was no chance for me to wait any longer. I was absolutely obsessed with it. Right. But I thought I was the only one and I was very ashamed. And I didn't want anyone to know about this because I felt like a total loser. And um, so what I did was I actually found around me people who drank a lot more than I did. And I did that very successfully. So my partner and all his mates drank twice as much. So all of a sudden, I was fine. I was the baby of the clan, of the tribe. I was so good. I would only start, you know, drinking after lunch where they would swap the coffee for beer. So I kept on telling myself, well, you know, I'm not like them. I'm not so bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly right. And then I, I had already reached a, a certain amount of delusion. And I was, and to be honest, this was all totally uh, subconscious. I didn't go out of my way deliberately to surround myself by people who drank uh, crazy, stupid amounts. It was just a natural progression. And I use this term with a smile on my face because that was definitely not progression. But it, I created a, a comfort zone where being with them gave me license to just drink to excess. And basically, when I started, I just could not stop. Yeah. So my way of controlling the situation was then I stopped drinking spirits. And then, you know, when some nights I would probably drink two or three bottles of wine or champagne I knew it was too much so I would drink a big glass of water in between glasses of uh, alcohol and again telling myself that this was my way of controlling the situation but bottom line was I was still drinking ridiculous amount and when I started hearing on the television things like you know a standard amount is two or three units for women. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm, I'm hitting, you know, 20, Not. 25 units a day. Where's my health going to go? And sure enough, um, my anxiety was getting worse. 
I had also uh, some sort of mild depression. I was hiding from everyone. I was actually really not well, but booze was my crutch. It made me feel more confident. Uh, I thought I was funny when I was uh, drinking. Um, it also uh, helped me sleep better because I had problems with insomnia. Um, it served a lot of purposes and really good purposes. And deep down, I kind of knew it, it was not sustainable, but I just couldn't stop. I could not stop. And I was actually really fed up. So I ended up breaking up with my partner, blaming him for my over drinking. Because it's always easier to blame everybody else than to face the facts that I'm the one with the problem and I can only change myself. And removing myself from that relationship meant that I was basically by myself able to uh, to stop. Or that was the plan anyway, but the plan didn't eventuate because gradually I realized that I was, I needed, I was drinking basically first, you know, half a bottle a day just to wait I, I wouldn't drink before um during the week and that's how I could tell myself I'm not an alcoholic because I can survive one or two days without but the fact is when I was really alone there was no no way I could manage that and I was so obsessed I was so desperately trying to control and I just couldn't do it and I drank more and more and more and I was just all all alone, and I was fine because I was not... I kept telling myself, well, I'm not hurting anyone. Um, I'm not drink driving, except for that one time. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, I was in a bad state. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, we might take a quick break. Uh, we've got a, another song. Uh, this one's called Monday, Monday by the Mums and Papas again from 1966. Ba-da, ba-da, It was all 
other day. Every other day, every other day of the week is fine, yeah. But whenever Monday comes, but whenever Monday comes, you can find me crying all of the time. Monday, Monday, can't trust that day. Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. You're listening to Living Free Show on 3CR 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. I'm talking with Eugenie and Nikita about recovering from alcoholism with the help of, help of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so, Nikita, back to you. Um, so, how did you get out of the the pub scene in Scotland? Um, I ended up having a mental breakdown. Um, I was playing with some drugs I shouldn't have, and. Um, just got overwhelmed. It would have been a mix of um, just <laughs> unsustainable lifestyle, um, stress on the body, too much drinking, all of this. It was <laughs> this was my rock bottom, basically. Um, and I um, developed a fear of leaving the house. I, I couldn't work anymore. Um, but I, I still had this insane desire to drink. Um, I had to get really wasted to um, fly home from from Scotland to Melbourne. It's like a, like a 23-hour flight or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the worst, worst two days of my life. Um, um, spent, spent about eight months just trying to get my head screwed on um, after that and um, started to get a bit better um, uh, and then uh, started to try and get back into work and um, when I when I started to feel better I started to try drinking again um, and then as soon as I started to get back into that old routine of drinking and binging um, I started to rocketing back down um the anxiety um 
the the fear of leaving the house came back and I I just couldn't do it anymore. Um when I would when I would black out I um my friends would tell me that I would try to off myself and um when I would wake up the next day I would I would feel so bad like like I just couldn't do it anymore. Like I couldn't live with it. I couldn't live without it. I didn't have any options. Um so I rang the hotline um on a a night where I drank I drank caffeinated wine. Uh because if I didn't go to sleep then I'd never get a hangover. That was my thinking. That was my best thinking. <laughs> Um, I rang them up. Uh, I got a lovely lady, uh, and she said, "Can you can you go to this meeting the next day?" And I thought, "Oh, the next day? Like I thought you'd give me one in a week's time, you know, so I could chicken out of it." But if you tell me that I have to go tomorrow, like I guess I have to go. Um, it's actually just two k's away from the radio station here, um, and I went. And just before I came in, there were two guys with the same haircut standing outside both holding books in the same way both wearing the same shirt and I went oh Mormons <laughs> obviously not Mormons um, it's a spiritual program not religious at all um, but you know that was just my my first thought to trying to get me to run away um, but I went I went in anyway because I you know I didn't have any 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 other plan you know this this was my only option and uh i've i've never been never been more glad of um making this making this decision um this has been the the weirdest um the weirdest, most sane decision I've ever made. Wow, it's right up there, isn't it? Yeah. So, how did were you drunk at the time? No. No. Um, I was very hungover though. Yeah. Right. So, what's the welcome like for the first time alcoholic? Oh, they um, if they find out that you're a newcomer, um, they are very, very warm and welcoming. They understand how difficult it is for you to come in for your first time. Um, you know, no one's rushing to get into AA. Everyone in AA understands that no one really wants to be there on their first day. Mm. Um, so we're we're all we're all trying to you know, make it as easy for mm. you as possible and. Everyone's everyone wants you to have, you know, the easiest time you can. Okay. Uh, so, what about you, Eugenie? Um, how was coming into AIE for you? Well, I had hit rock bottom, and after a very unsuccessful attempt at drying myself up by myself, I knew I needed help, and a drug and alcohol counsellor was part of this group and highly recommended it and I was so desperate for help that I thought I've got, I'm, 
I, I'll do anything. At this point, I will do anything. And I went there, although I had been drinking, and yet people around me were so warm and welcoming and uh, um, offered their phone number, and I was in there listening. And uh, it was a bit of an epiphany because for the first time in my entire life, I heard people telling their stories, and, and I could so relate to the struggle and the journey they had gone through. And I was sitting around maybe 30 or 40 people, and some of them had one year sobriety, 10 years sobriety, 25 years sobriety, and they were smiling and they looked really happy, and I just wanted a piece of that. And um, I was highly recommended to get a sponsor straight away, and I did. And I basically also had support 24-7 uh, with this uh, lady who understood basically what alcoholism is. And I was told to uh, get as quickly as uh, early as possible into the program, which I also did. And it was just such an amazing experience because of the support, because of the fact that I had isolated myself for so long I gradually regained a sense of belonging, a connection, an opportunity to socialize with people who didn't judge me. Um, I was able to also uh, confront my demons and uh, uh, and my part in my past. And that was really un unraveling a lot of uh, situations. And I grew so much from that. Um, I And all of a sudden... You know, days turn into weeks of sobriety and then eventually the the, the mental obsession dissipates to a point where it, it's disappeared. And uh, it's a game changer. And it's, it's, I mean, it saved my life. And I've regained my sanity. I've regained my, you know, my will for life. I've been able to, um, uh, to look after myself so much better. My health is a lot better. Um, I've been even uh, able to uh, address some of the past traumas I've experienced and, and I've done that successfully without picking up a glass. And I just know that, you know, one glass is one too many for me. I know I need to keep myself separate. But the fact is this program really gives you the tools to, hand, to learn how to handle life without this uh, crutch. And it's and uh, life without it, I thought, was not worth living. And now it's exactly the opposite. It's a bit of a weird thing because I never thought I would say this to uh, to you or to anyone else because I didn't know what life was. I didn't know what life was. No. But you have to be on the other side to <laughs> actually realize that life is fantastic and you don't need grog to enjoy it. I would say even... I enjoy it so much more now because of that level of clarity I, I experience. And I've got more money, you know, and, <laughs> and I, I don't have any hangovers. So I'm actually a lot happier. And yeah, it's, it's it, you know, the journey teaches you how to handle the standard ups and downs of life. But you have a group of people who are there to also support you along the way. And I've met incredible human beings who have really taught me how to um, how to be free. I mean, that's the biggest gift. You know, that sense of freedom. 
where you've got peace between the ears. It's like, oh, it's priceless. And I wouldn't have done it without AA. So I'm so grateful to be here and be able to tell that my story because it's, you know, I want everyone to give yourself a, a chance. Go there. You know, even with all your uh, your your prejudices, it doesn't matter. Just give it a chance. Have a go. Go to, uh, you know, what they call the beginners groups and give it a try because you're worth it. So that's what I want to say to people. Okay. It's worth it. Nikita, do I add anything? Oh, I think I think Eugenie said it all. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, listen, if anybody's out there who wants to find out more about Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, you can call them on one three hundred triple two triple two, or you can go online at aa.org.au. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Eugenie and Nikita for coming in to 3CR studio and sharing their Alcoholics Anonymous recovery experience with us. Thank you both. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking about recovering from drug addiction and we'll be joined by some members of Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, stay tuned now for Black Noise Radio, hosted by Kerry Lee, featuring black news and views, current affairs, music, sport, culture and the arts, all from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. Uh, thanks again for listening to the Living Free program today.